This is a drink with a friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Ted Nugent. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm Seth Haynes. Sorry. <laughs> Why did you even pick that name? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. Do you ever remember uh, Fletch? I think it was in Fletch uh-huh. when he's always giving fake names. And yeah. He says Nugent, Ted Nugent. I forgot about that. I, I haven't seen know. that in it like It just reminded me. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm in a Fletch mood today. All right, so Ted, what are you drinking today? I am drinking um, out of a, a half, a, you know, handy metal bottle, not not recycled plastics, very environmentally friendly water, uh, filled with electrolyte drink mix, mm. which is really Do you just work out salt. Today? <laughs> no, not yet. I'm going to later on today, but I just I I, I feel like for whatever reason I am dehydrated so much lately and i'm like man it's like i keep drinking water and it doesn't seem to help so i thought you know what let's throw some electrolytes in there and see if if i feel better and i will tell you um i'm about three quarters of the way through this bottle and i feel much more hydrated well i'm so glad to hear yeah so everyone (laughs) you know don't forget your electrolytes yeah uh what about you what are you drinking Plain old black coffee. Uh, nothing exciting. It is a Brazil blend that's actually not very good. We have the subscription that we uh, get a bag of beans every month. And the subscription mm. is usually really good, except this month. Like Kyle and I, when we both saw that it was Brazil, we were like, womp, womp. Like, that's not our favorite. Mm. So we're just drinking yeah. it because it, you know, we already paid for it. Um, but it's not great. So I won't even share the name of the company because... Otherwise, they've been great, except for this one bag. Yeah. So you should coffee. you should text me the name of that company <laughs> afterwards. Did you okay. know that I am actually uh, I have a vested interest in a coffee company, and mm. um, and I've been exploring what does it look like to have direct consumer subscription coffee services. So, do you like really? it? Is this a good thing? It is a good thing. It is a net positive in our life. It's fun. Well, and the reason is not because we don't have access to coffee. We're kind of pathetically, you know, rich in that department. Yeah. Um, It's more for the fun of it. And because we like, we like the whole, like the way it supports farmers, small scale, blah, blah, blah. And it's also fun in that it's like a surprise every month. We find out what country Mm. we're visiting coffee wise every time by opening the box. So that's, that's why we like it. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I I like that idea. I, for me, I would love to have a subscription coffee service just for the convenience of it. Mm-hmm. It would just be it's, nice. It is awfully your handy. Coffee shows up at your door. It's weirdly handy. Yeah. Anyway. Well, <sighs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll look for that that link <laughs> in the uh, in the texter after the show's over. <laughs> okay. Well, so the thing we thought would be fun to do this year, at least this season, is. Uh, we're both bookworms. Most of our listeners are bookworms. We thought it'd be fun every couple episodes to just deep dive into a particular book that either one of us really has benefited from, think that our listeners would love, and that we would basically recommend. And it's not just like book reviews. It's more like a bit of a deep dive into how this book has changed the way we think, the way we see beauty, the way we understand story structure, you know, what somehow it's just been a net positive in our life. But you, Seth, had this great idea of like, let's actually go back to the very, very beginning and talk about sort of our, our, what would you call it? Our entry level books, our first loves in the book world of like, what was it that sort of got us going? I don't know. Is that what you're thinking? All right. Yeah. yeah. First loves. I think that's the way I think I said our firsts in the uh, text exchange, like our first love, the thing that, that the first time you, you read it, you were like, Oh, 
man, I really like books. I really like literature. I, I really like this, this genre. And, and to kind of pull back a little bit, um, I think this is like broadly applicable, right? I think when you stop and you think about the things that you love in, in your life, um, you know, I love photography. We've talked about this a lot before. And my aunt was a photographer. Um, and, and, and I can remember some really early photographs that I saw that really captivated me and that I was really taken by, like even as a kid. Um, but my aunt introduced me to a photographer, um, when I was in high school named Henry Cartier-Bresson, a French photographer. And the moment I saw his work, I was like, I want to do that. Um, and I think painters would say the same thing. The first time they saw a particular painter, they thought a painting, they thought, man, I want to do that. Or chefs would say the first time I tasted this thing, right. you know, I, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I think, you know, as we dive into this area of books, that's kind of the framework I want to keep in mind is that this is not just a conversation about books. This is actually just a conversation about first loves. Mm, I like that. I like that. I think first loves and sort of these stories that tapped us on the shoulder and asked us, you know, invited yeah. us in to the, yeah. to viewing life more sacramentally because we're made for stories. And, you know, I, I know it's pretty literal when we're talking about books, but I would argue that lots of stories exist, you know, from good food to, I don't know, um, music and anything in between. So I, th I think, you know, we're talking about the stories that invite us into looking at life through a, a sacramental lens and just the art that compels us to join in that creativity as God made makers. Like, you know, we have yeah. been invited to be co-creators. And what does that look like for all of us? Not just you and I yeah. as writers, but all of us as, you know, parents and engineers and everything in between. So yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Hundred cool. percent. So let's let's dive in. Let me ask you. I mean, what is your first recollection of words and that 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 like really moved you in book length form? Um, that you were like, oh wow, there's something there's something here. You know, I remember always reading. I remember having my nose on a book all the time when I was young. Uh, my parents have the story of not being able to find me and nearly calling the police. And it turned out I was just lost in a good book and <laughs> didn't think to answer them, that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember getting super into like the Babysitter Club series, but I wouldn't count that as like the kind of work that really sucked me in as like, oh, this is what it means to tell a story until I believe I was in sixth grade. I could be wrong. And for me, my first love was Madeline LaIngle's A Wrinkle in Time. I don't know if you have ever read the series. Mm -hmm. um, probably have. But I don't know if it's been a while. I revisited it, I don't know, three or four years ago again and remembered what a good book it is. What great storytelling it is. The movie that came out a few years ago was not great because it really did not hit on what made her story so great. But that was the book that really sucked me into, like, here's a woman telling a story that spans genres and treats me like a thinking person. You know, she's got that well-known quote. Um, I actually pulled it up because I just think it's so great. It's one of my favorites. As a writer and as a reader, she says, you have to write the book that wants to be written. And if the book will be too difficult for grownups, then write it for children. She does such a good job of writing kids' yeah. books that treat kids like thinking people. So that yeah. that's to me my first love. 
what was it about that book that just like really sucked you in or, or dragged you, uh, you know, mm-hmm. into the middle of it? So to me, some of my favorite books are books where the setting feels like another character. And mm, yeah. I always yes. loved the Murray household. I loved their rickety house, their backyard that goes into the woods, the woods themselves, the cabin where you find the three old women that turned out to be, you know, supernatural sages of sorts. I loved the setting. I loved the idea of having a a science lab in your own house. I love Meg's room Mm -hmm. up in the attic. I love that it starts off in a dark and stormy night, you know, and, and she's got this quilt and she, I mean, and I, I absolutely just loved it followed very closely by the characters themselves. I identified with Meg to a scary degree. I was not necessarily someone who was frequently called into the principal's office like Meg, but I was a misfit or, you know, I think we all kind of thought of ourselves as a misfit, but she was brilliant, but undervalued, Um, had a younger brother that she always stood up for to a fault, Um, looked at most of the adults in her life (laughs) as people who didn't really know what they were talking about. And, and to me, she was the first character I felt like I really identified with. And, and then I think just this is the first book that was a love story between kids that treated it like a real thing. It wasn't like a sappy, saccharine, silly story where two characters thought each other was cute and didn't want to talk to each other. We're talking, yeah. you know, we're talking about Calvin and Meg genuinely loving how the other person is made. I mean, finding them physically attractive and and Madeline Lingle writing that well. But genuinely holding a great regard for each other. And Mm -hmm. I just, I I think as a kid, just being treated like my, my proclivities in that hormonal ridden age were to be treated with kindness and sincerity, I thought was just, it it spoke volumes to me. And then finally, you know, just the characters like Mrs. Who always quoting really smart old dead people like Euripides and Pascal and Shakespeare and the Bible and um, I don't know. To me, it was just a very smart book. You know, it's like, is this is this sci-fi? Yes. Is this a love story? Yes. Is this full of theology? Yes. But done in just like a perfectly told way. Like, it's just such yeah. a good book. And just like C.S. Lewis's quote about like, if a book isn't good enough for a 50-year-old, it's not good enough for a 10-year-old, I'm botching it. Yeah. But that's the summary. It's still a good book as an adult. Like I read the series over COVID and it was like, yeah, these still hold up really, really good. So that was my first love. Yeah. 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 You know, I think one of the things that you just mentioned is really key to me in really falling in love with any form of art. And that is that the, the scene outside of the characters is a character. Um, There's a book that we'll talk about just as we go through this kind of uh, series, Mm-hmm. Um, Brideshead re- revisited. Yes. There are a couple of there are a couple of settings mm-hmm. uh, in that book that operate as characters, but there's one in particular that we'll talk about. And it was a stroke of genius. Like it was mm. like when I think what makes Evil Wob master, it was this one scene that like masterfully demonstrated uh, the surroundings of nature as a character. Um, and I think that's really powerful and that's really important. And in fact, that was one of the reasons that I got drawn into reading too, like into literature too. Um, my first book, I was also 
12. I actually was given two books and both of these books did it for me. Okay. But the first one that I read was because it was shorter and I was 12, um, was the old man in the sea by Ernest Hemingway, which listen, caveat, caveat. I know he was a terrible human, whatever. (laughs) Right. Um, but he was a damn good writer. He's so good. It's, it makes me mad. (laughs) He's so good. I know it's frustrating. It's the, Mm -hmm. the number of things that he can do with such a small number of words is ridiculous. Um, you know, you and I, I I think when we, uh, went through at home in the world, um, I talked a lot about word economy. That's like a thing mm-hmm. that's very important to me is word economy. And 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 that was my first taste of word economy. Sure. Um, that you can take a character, drop him in the middle of a story, in the middle of a sea, um, you know, fighting the marlin, the beast, so to speak. You know, it's the, the age-old story of the hero versus the beast. Um, that you can pull off that entire arc that is a universal theme in all literature in a way that gives you uh, deep empathy, emotion, it makes you tense, it makes you cry, it makes you do all the things as a 12-year-old, and Hmm. it does it in something like 90 pages. Right. I I mean, it was absolutely mind-blowing to me. Um, And I think I read it in like two days at 12. Now, were you drawn to it at 12 because of the fishing or because of the person who recommended it? I think it was probably, well, my uncle uh, Lee gave it to me and Lee's an amazing human being and he lives in Baton Rouge and fishes a lot in the marsh and um, just, you know, someone that I always sort of looked up to. So I'm sure that there was part of that, but, and I'm sure that part of it was, was fishing. Like I liked the outdoors as a kid, as a 12 year old, I was really more of a basketball player. So I didn't you know, I wasn't into fishing as much then as I sort of am now. So mm-hmm. I think for me, that was the other thing is it was so surprising that I was reading about, you know, an old man, not a young man, not somebody like right. me at all, um, in a country context that was completely different than my own, fishing in a way that was completely different than the way I fished yeah. um, for a fish I'd never even heard of at the time. Um, and I wasn't super into fishing. And yet with no understanding of any of those elements, I was completely captivated by the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the thing for me is the writing. It was so spot on and so well done that so it, did I you was s- like, that's what I want to do. Did you start writing at around that age? Would you say? Yeah, I can't remember if it was, and it may have been a little bit before that, but um, that would have been at Christmas. That would have been Christmas break of my 12th grade, uh, 12, 12 year old year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't either too long before that, or maybe around the same time that I started writing short stories and selling them on the playground for a quarter. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. My first story, in fact, it took in some of these elements, some of these natural elements. It, my first story was about the resurrection of the dead. Have I ever told you this story? Mm-mm, no. It's about the great revelation scene where the dead shall rise. Yes. Yes, you have told me this because there yes. was concern. <laughs> like, yeah, there was concern because yeah. I my my uh, take on it was that everybody had misinterpreted the story and that the resurrection of the dead was actually just frogs. And so all these frogs rose in the air to to go meet the coming king. Um, and I sold it to, to Jenna Kohler for a quarter on the playground. Nice. Well, so this was around when I wrote my first story too. And I remember being mortified because I shared it with my 
sixth grade English teacher, and she decided to read it out loud to the class. And that, to me, felt like a betrayal. Like, no, but she thought it was so good that she wanted to share it with everybody. And I was mortified. Um, It involved a detective girl who uses clues from Shakespeare to find something in a haunted house that involved turtles. That's I remember turtles, haunted house, Shakespeare. Detective Turtles girl. and frogs. Um, <laughs> I think I could actually go back and rewrite my story. We should do that sometime. We should rewrite. That the could stories. be fun, actually. Yeah. Um, how was yeah. the critical reception of your short story? Did the uh, class like it? Yeah, I think it was mostly crickets because I think. Well, you know what? I take that back. I remember a few kids saying, "Wow, that was really good," but mostly it was crickets because now I come across as the brown nosing like kid who writes for fun in her spare time when it's not an assignment, and mm, yeah. that age is fraught with insecurities. Uh, you know, and I was still trying to figure out who the heck I was. So to me, it just felt yeah. mostly like I want to die into a corner. But I mean, looking back, man, and as a teacher and as an adult now, I'm like, I get why she did that. She wanted to tell me, you know, what I did was good and was worth yeah, sharing and not holding it to yeah. myself. Yeah, keep going. So I thought it was great that she did that. Um, and then I'm finding it interesting because we did not talk about this ahead of time that we both picked books that we read around that same age. And I wonder what that says about that age, that 12 year old range of time, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was around that same time that I fell in love with photography. Hmm. Um, and, yeah. and I don't, I, you know, maybe there's something about that age where curiosities are sparked, where things are like, oh, this is actually a thing that I love and that I could really see myself diving into. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to hear from from the listeners, you know, right. the thing that you love, like, when was that sparked in you? That's um, super interesting. interesting if, it was all 12, that. if we all had the epiphany at 12. Right, right. I mean, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I would say like, when I just couldn't think of anything else, I wanted to write stories. And it was pretty early on. So I don't know. I, I have a 12 year old boy right now and I look at him and to me, it's such a great age. I think it's really fun. You know, he, yeah. he's getting into that super awkward voice crack kind of feet too big for the rest of his body age. But, you know, he still loves to play. He still look in a tree most of the time. He takes after Kyle to a T with woodworking and um, knowing how to fix things and build things and all the stuff. So there's something magical about that age, I think, where it's like the end of the golden years where you're still a kid and just entering the reality of the rest of your life. But I don't know. It's it's kind of a thin space, I think, at that age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned a second book and I have a second book too. I'm curious what, what else there was besides Old Man in the Sea. Was there something else? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was the thing that would set up my love for gothic literature that I sort of nursed more in my um, teenage years and Hmm. actually into my 20s and 30s and even today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But um, The Lord of the Flies. I know that's not a piece of gothic literature, so don't don't at me, as the kids say. Um, but there was something about that book again. I mean, it's, it's a boy struggle against nature. I got both, he, you know, Lee gave me both of these books, you know, sure. at, that, at that age. Um, so there was something about it that was a boy struggle against nature. Um, I was always from a young age, very interested in economy, uh, the economy and in politics. And so both of those themes are kind of like, Hey, how would we set up an economy? How would we set up? a government in the absence of any government and how do we keep anarchy from taking hold? You know, these sorts of things, like all those things are throughout the book. And so that was the thing at at an early age that really struck me Hmm. about that book. But there's this moment in the book. There are several moments in the book like this, but there's a moment in the book that I can remember at 12 reading 
being very confused and like rereading and rereading and rereading. Um, and it was about the, the pilot who was, who was sick and how they sort of uh, painted this grotesque of him, like this monstrous grotesque of him um, in very, you know, I, I mean that, yeah, the only way I know how to say it is like Gothic terms, uh, yeah. at least as a 12 yeah. year old. Um, and, and, and I remember thinking like, wow, Golding is taking something that's so, that should be so straightforward and he's distorting it through this lens of story in a way that mm-hmm. you're not exactly sure what's happening or who this per- person or character is and actually making something that shouldn't be very terrifying at all, like super terrifying. Um, and, and that was a moment when I thought, oh man, you can do so much with angles in literature like you can play with the light and the shadow and the angles very much like photography and you can create this Mm. like different feeling um and i really love that about that book and that was the thing that that would subsequently lead me to authors like o'connor i can argue pretty well that i think lord of the flies is a gothic book you know i teach gothic literature every other year when we get into Brit Lit with my students. And when you consider, I think there's like eight classically, you know, associated elements of Gothic and a book tends to be Gothic if there's like five out of eight of them or something. And just Mm. at quick, you know, reminiscence, I can think of enough from that book to consider it. So yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting that both of those books have the chief conflict of man versus nature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you look at those, those um, classically held, conflicts you've got man versus man man versus society there's seven of them um that both of those you know old man versus Mm -hmm. a fish young men i mean there's also man versus man in lord of the flies but i'll you know what does it look like for a boy to be faced with an island that's inhospitable and having to you know i don't know start something from nothing that's interesting yeah yeah i I, to to me i think that's the that's the 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 beauty of um, that book in particular is that there, there are so many different natural forces that those boys are sort of uh, fighting against. There's so much conflict all throughout that book. Um, and the resolution of it's not great. Right. I mean, no, it's, you know, it resolves, it does resolve, but you know, there's something also about it that I, I it resolved in a way that felt particularly unsatisfying to me as a 12 year old. And I think that, that still was like, oh, you don't have to have a a, a pretty bow on everything. Like mm-hmm. every story mm-hmm. doesn't end like perfectly to the satisfaction of the reader. And there was something about that that I love too. Uh, years ago, I read a book called um, City on Fire by Garth Riss Kahlberg. You and I have talked about yeah. this book. Yes. It's 900 pages. It's sprawling. There's some absolute brilliance in the pages. And the resolution of the book is so neat and tidy um, Mm. that a lot of critics, though they love the book, sort of they came back to this idea of like, well, should it really have have ended this way? It, It essentially uses an entire book to set up a resolution for a character of like, hey, this is why he became this. Um, and I actually really loved that. I really loved that, but. But looking back at some of my favorite books, some of my favorite short stories, um, they don't resolve with pretty bows because that's just not how life is. 
That's not how life is at all. I just yesterday literally wrapped up a session with my juniors and seniors on Russian short stories. And <laughs> we we went through four short stories, every single one of them. The characters either just like fade away into oblivion or they drink themselves into a stupor right. or yeah. they die. Like that's just the Russians are the masters of end. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so interesting. Um, some of the best storytellers, they they acknowledge the reality of life that things usually don't turn out you know, all wrapped up in a pretty bow. That's and, right. and there are times when that's beautiful. Like I would say Wrinkle in Time ends that way. And then there are times when it doesn't. And I will say my second book that meant a great deal to me. It was a few years later. It was my junior year of high school when I really understood what it looked like to create characters in a story um, and doesn't end well is The Great Gatsby by oh F. Scott gosh. Fitzgerald. That book yes. rocked yeah. my world so hard. I loved it so much. I mean, this is another short book. You can read it in like a weekend. But yeah. oh my gosh, his writing, like he is, there's something about those writers that hung out in Paris in the 1920s and 30s, I guess. They're, he's such a good writer, it makes me mad. Um, yeah. And his, just the way he structures characters that you don't root for anybody and yet you're still sad when characters make the wrong choices but you're yeah. you're thinking do i want nick caraway to be to redeem himself yes i do but why am i feeling this like understanding about why he is pulled toward jay and daisy and all these characters oh it's because this is kind of scratching at the surface of what i can be like when i don't have any point to my life when i mm -hmm. cave into my my appetites that are not rightly ordered, you know, um, it, it's such a good glimpse into what a particular era of our history was like, but also kind of the universal theme of, of human beings that mm -hmm. are left to their own depravity. And then, you know, like with the great first line of A Wrinkle in Time, it has one of the best final lines ever in mm -hmm. literature. It's mm -hmm. such a good final sentence. So we beat on boats against the current, borne mm -hmm. back ceaselessly into the past. Oh my gosh. So great. Such a good story. And so that book to me, turned me into someone who thought I really, really, really want to tell stories like more than just that would be fun. The kind of the way A Wrinkle in Time did this one was a, I could actually do something with words and wave, weave them into something bigger than myself. And that's what he yeah. does in like, what? I mean, 180 pages. It's amazing. Yeah. So, but the way he uses language is such a good foil to to Hemingway, right? Because in the way that yeah. Hemingway uses these like sort of like terse and athletic sentences, mm -hmm. uh, Fitzgerald can use these like more verbose, yeah, but beautiful, beautiful language. I mean, that's the only way I know how to put it. Like, it's not it's not athletic, it's not terse. It it's sort of more classically beautiful. Um, yep. And yet can drive to the point in a very short period of time using a completely mm -hmm. different writing style. The other thing that I loved um, personally, and I'm not, you know, listen, I'm an econ major who reads a lot. I'm not a literature teacher. So um, I, I don't know how to describe this. Maybe you'll have better words for this. But when I think of The Great Gatsby, actually when I think of all of Fitzgerald, but I think Gatsby is a very particular indication of this um and he actually uses this with the eye on the billboard but he he actually gives you photographic scenes like scenes that you could like for lack of a better phrase see the polaroid 
of the scene. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's a snapshot, there's yeah. a snapshot, there's a snapshot. And you can like imagine it in your head. Um, and I don't know of any writer. I can't think of any great writer where I'm just like, yeah, you're actually writing out beautiful, perfect descriptions of Polaroids and laying them out so that I can see the story. Yeah. This, okay, I'm going to read you, let's see, this is just a few sentences about a kiss. And it's not word economy. You know, uh, Hemingway would just say he kissed her. And it would still be fantastic. But this is what Fitzgerald says. He says, his heart beat faster and faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable, perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited, listening for a moment longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. At his lips touch, she blossomed like a flower and the incarnation was complete. And you know exactly what that looks like and how that feels, you know, it's so good. And yeah, they were good. I, from what I understood, they were friends, they were drinking buddies. They, uh, did not like each other's writing Hemingway and Fitzgerald, from what I understand, think they were pretty blunt at telling each other things like that, but, uh, they're both masters. So I don't know. Yeah. One, two, two things about one about that, uh, about the kiss scene. This this is again. This is the linguistic version of Cartier Bresson's decisive moment. That was his whole mm-hmm. photographic idea. Was like, I want to catch the decisive moment. I say that was his whole. That was a big idea of his. Is I'm going to catch the decisive moment. The foot crossing, you know, over the puddle. The the boy with the two bottles of wine. Like the moment where everything sort of snaps into place. That's the moment I want to catch, and it's less than a tenth of a second. Um, and, and this is exactly what Fitzgerald does in that moment. He, instead of just telling you the decisive moment, he draws it out so that you can create that Polaroid. That's exactly what I was talking about and why I think he's, he's so brilliant. And you're right. I mean, if, if it would have been, uh, Hemingway, he would have said they kissed and it still would have been amazing. It's, but it would have been athletic. It would have been movement. It would have been driving to a, a, a point. Um, and, and I think the thing that I love about the relationship that I understand about the relationship anyway, is that, that yes, they were brutal with each other and they did sort of cut each other pretty hard. Um, and I think that probably made each other's writing better. I've heard a story and I can't, I don't know if this is apocryphal or where I heard, I don't remember it now, but I heard a story, um, that Hemingway sent Fitzgerald, the sun also rises and, um, and and Fitzgerald said something like, "This is an amazing novel." After the first ninety pages or something, I would cut them all. <laughs> like, there's this entire swath sure. of the sun also rises that's just missing uh, oh because Fitzgerald said that you don't need this as crap. Get rid of it. And then the novel that we oh. have is is that version of the novel. And I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe somebody who knows the story well, that's better. Such can a good one me. too. I and think maybe it's like 15 pages, Hemingway. but I think it's like yeah. 90 pages. I think it was huge. That's so, cool. um, so, and, and that, that just says a lot about the way collaboration, you know, happens in any art. I think it's beautiful. Well, and I didn't know we were going there, but, um, I will make a recommendation and put in the show notes for a movie that you may have seen. I think you and Amber would both really like it. Midnight in Paris. It's oh yeah. With- yes. Yes. 
So yeah, good. it's with Owen Wilson. Yeah. yeah. And um, Rachel McAdams. It's a Woody Allen movie who I know we're all supposed to hate and I mostly do, but that's like one of the few movies, maybe the only movie of his that I actually like enough to recommend. So really good, really good movie. If you love this era of books and just like Paris in general, which I know you and Amber don't like, but I like Paris. Um, I mean, I'm book. sure we would. We just don't yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The I'll one to, trip I'll was to, not enough. No, it was no. Not enough. It was not enough. I'll show you around. Not that I know it well, but I'll, I'll show you around yeah. enough to where you might actually like it. Um, amazing. All right. So with all this good stuff, you know, we'll put a link to all four of these books in the show notes. I think what's cool about everything we recommended is that they're short enough that people can read. They're really accessible in like a week, even when you're a busy mom or dad or you have a million other things on your plate. Um, if you just feel this need to like dust off some, I would call these classics or like accessible classics because they're not that old, um, but they're super well written and you could just, I don't know, pound them out in a week and talk about them with a friend and uh, hopefully get a lot out of them. But with that, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Yeah. I mean, no, I, I agree with that. I think also, like, again, it bears mentioning, like, these are the books that that shaped and formed our desire to do some of what we do. Now, I, you know, you teach literature. I'm an attorney. Um, I'm also a co-writer. And I'm also, I also have a, an interest in a branding agency. Um, but in all those three <laughs> things, what I'm doing is telling stories, right? Like, yeah, I yeah. want to tell better stories in branding. I want to tell better stories in my legal work. I want to tell better stories as I help people write their books. You want to uh, highlight great stories in your teaching. You want to write great stories. You want to write up an amazing novel and release that to the world and those things. I think it's really important to just highlight for us, like these are the things that informed our lives and mm-hmm. our art I think it's important to kind of pause no matter what you do, whether it's accounting or engineering, like you said earlier, or being an attorney or whatever the thing is to stop and ask yourself, like, what are the things that, that drove you to do that? Like, what are the things that sparked your interest? Because I think sometimes when you're, particularly when you're in your mid forties, you can lose sight of the reasons why you're doing the things you're doing. You can get lost in the grind. Um, And I find that sometimes just stopping and reflecting on, oh, yeah, this is why I first loved the thing um, is really motivating. I agree 100%. There's something about this age where we just get busy and we forget just to remember our first love. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So with that in mind, since we like to add beauty to our days, even when they're ordinary and busy, Seth, what is something adding more beauty to your life right now? Um, My... Ocean green, surf green. I think it's called surf green. Uh, <laughs> Fender Telecaster is adding more beauty to my life. It is a guitar, an electric guitar. Okay. Got it. I may have talked about it before. I realized you have. That this I is just a didn't departure. know it was green. <laughs> yeah, it's surf green uh-huh. actually, um, and it's got a rosewood neck. For those of you who care hmm. about that, solid all rosewood. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful guitar. All right. Um, and. Uh, I know we're supposed to talk about art of others and typically what we're reading or watching or whatever, but this guitar for whatever reason right now is bringing me a whole lot of beauty. And at the end of the night, most nights you will find me blowing off a ton of steam with that guitar in my hand. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I actually created some uh, Instagram music just last week with it. Really? That's cool. You can find that my latest uh, reel on Instagram 
nice. has some music that I created with that surf green Telecaster. Very cool. I like that. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, what about you? What, are some, what is something, one thing bringing truth, beauty, or goodness into your life? Um, it's kind of a random suggestion, but there is a playlist on Spotify called Catholic Lo-Fi. And you might ask yourself, what makes Lo-Fi Catholic? Well, the answer is nothing really, except huh. that, well, this is created by Matt Frad. And, you know, he's actually quite the musician, which I was not aware of until, you know, I kind of did a little digging. But um, I think the two things that make this uh, Catholic is that there's Gregorian chant involved. And every now and then there are recordings from uh, the venerable Fulton Sheen in it. Otherwise, this is just good background work music. So don't have to be Catholic at all to enjoy it. But I really like it. It's it's been a surprising just background to our days, especially when I'm working at home. So I will link to it in the show notes. That'd be awesome. I love good lo-fi yeah. uh, to work to. And every time I listen to lo-fi, I think of what my kids called it when they were very, very young. Um, right. They would always ask me, Dad, why are you listening to that lo-fi music? <laughs> Cute. I love it. Yeah. Well, it the nice good. thing about the nice thing about lo-fi, at least for our family, is that everybody can listen to it. Like nobody hates it really in our family. Um, it's so, yeah. not. Uh, yeah, it's not offensive in any way, shape or form. Right. Exactly. It's very chill. All right. Well, it is time to wrap up this chat. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. And that is where you can also find how to support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. As we say almost every time, the show is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for us to make. So at the cost of just a cup of coffee or a pint, you can help keep it going. And a number of you have been doing that lately. So we really, 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 really appreciate it. Again, that's at adrinkwithafriend.com, which is also where you can find the show notes of this episode. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my Substack newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? They can find me at sethhaines.substack.com. You can also you can also find all my music. Uh, you can also find all my music by searching any Ted Nugent albums. <laughs> right, right. It, you'll sound weirdly different and. Yeah, kind of weirdly different, different and my era. politics aren't quite the same either but whatever <laughs> music for the show is by kevin mcleod editing is by kyle oxenrider and i'm tish oxenrider with seth haynes we'll be back here again with you before you know it thanks for listening <laughs>